I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, this year marks 300 years since Britain got its first Prime Minister in the shape of Robert Walpole. On my Times radio show, we've done a different Prime Minister every week with Andrew Jimson, uh, who's got this brilliant book, Jimson's Prime Minister's Brief Lives from Walpole to Johnson. So what we thought we'd do, doing them all would take you weeks to uh, listen through to them all. But what we thought we'd do is take a look back on the Prime Ministers from Thatcher to Johnson. So we kick off then with the Iron Lady. It's Andrew Jimson discussing Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, where to begin? Such a extraordinarily influential Prime Minister, but still, even now, incredibly controversial and divisive, what, more than 40 years after she entered number 10? I think she inspired greater extremes of adoration and loathing than any other Prime Minister in modern times. Uh, and she, she imposed her personality more deeply on the country than any leader since Churchill. Uh, Nigel Lawson said the key to understanding Mrs Thatcher was that she actually said what she believed. And this is a very unusual thing. Women perhaps do it more than the men who surrounded her often couldn't understand her. They, they, they like Boris Johnson, they, they use the standard English methods of evasion, jokes, paradoxes, understatement, any number of ironical devices which enable one to avoid actually committing oneself to anything. And she, she rendered those devices unusable. She actually said what she thought uh, and was not a defeatist. Most of, the, most of the political class at that time were defeatists uh, and her own wet colleagues, socially much grander than her, they really thought that within a year or two she'd have to abandon these policies of hers and, she'd, and just like Edward Heath 10 years before, she'd have to have a U-turn uh, and she proved them wrong. It was, but it was very, very precarious. Although she lasted in office for 11 years in 209 days, which is a longer period of continuous service than anyone since Lord Liverpool, her situation was always precarious, which actually is quite right in a free country, the situation of the Prime Minister should be precarious. Let's go back to 1979 or 1974, when, or 75, when she actually became a Conservative yes. Party leader. Even today, we still tick off the first woman in various roles. Uh, we've still never had a woman chancellor, you know, even, or even in the sort of general life, leading major businesses or, I don't know, presenting football focus or whatever it might be. Even in 2021, we're still ticking off the first time uh, a woman has done a particular job. How extraordinary was it that uh, she emerged to re- to replace Ted Heath back in 75? It was very extraordinary because she wasn't seen as a prime minister in waiting. She'd served as education secretary from 1970 to 1974 and had been pretty loyal. I mean, she didn't have any affin- particular affinity with Heath. But she'd been pretty loyal to him. And Heath, of course, lost both the elections in 74 and the Tory MPs were very, very angry and he was very very rude to them and various senior figures thought well 
we're going to have a leadership contest and we'll come in in the second round. We, we must be loyal to Heath in the first round. She became the, the person with the courage to take him on in the first round. She had Ari Neve running her campaign, the Colditz SKP. He did a very, very skillful job and understated her support. Um, but the troops were mutinous and they mutinied and she did so well on the first round that that was it. She was the new leader. A great, a tremendous shock for the Tory party, but a, a, an example in a, of its ability to, to reinvent itself. Um, and, and yes, the first woman, people throughout her time in office, many people really had no idea how to talk, talk to her. And many people were deeply affronted by her, particularly intellectuals. Um, they really, they thought it was their duty to, uh, Ian McEwan said after she died in, in 2013, he said, it was never enough to dislike her. We liked disliking her. And Jonathan Miller, for example, said she had the diction <laughs> of a perfumed fart. I mean, it really was. Uh, I mean, the present prime minister comes in for a lot of criticism, but um, I think the, because it was a big element of misogyny, I think what Thatcher got was even worse. On the other hand, she also got more adoration than the present prime minister gets. So it was, it was a very extreme sort of spectrum of opinion that she aroused. And, and in part because, like you said, she had a clear sense of what she wanted to do and she got on and did it. And people can argue, well, you know, her treatment about the treatment of the miners, defeating the NUM, you know, or there's the Falklands or whatever it might be, or the economy, you know, sticking to her guns on the economy despite unemployment rising to three million, but dramatically yes. changing the economy of the UK in a way that, you know, nobody's sought to, well, certainly nobody in number 10 is sought to, to reverse since. Um, no. On her terms, she was successful, even if you might disagree with what she did. She did have a clear sense of what she wanted to do. She did. And although she was also highly pragmatic, she didn't have the showdown with the miners until there were, you know, good coal stocks and every prospect of winning it. And the, the trade union reforms were quite cautious, step by step, sensible reforms. Uh, the end product, partly because of the of the dreadful unemployment and the collapse of a lot of British industry was that the, the power of the unions was smashed to this day. So that was, a, a, and, and we had we had flexible labour markets and, and people, you know, managers could manage and so on. And a great many state enterprises were privatised. Um, and I mean, as soon as she came in, she got rid of things like exchange controls, where you couldn't take more than a certain amount of money abroad and bizarre things like that, which now seem totally bizarre. So she liberalised the economy. She she had she and her friends. I mean, following what the Institute of Economic Affairs had had been preaching for for, for decades in the wilderness at the Centre for Policy Studies, they worked out how to do how to do this uh, these or how to take this new economic approach. Partly pioneered by James Callaghan, her predecessor in 1976 when he had spending cuts. But anyhow, she did it very thoroughly and for 11 years. But of course, in the end, she overplayed her hand. Um, the poll tax and on Europe as well. She, uh, and she, she tended to fall out with people like Jeffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson, who had been um, great allies of hers in the early years. So the whole thing, she's, she sort of lost, she, she lost her own party, actually. They, of course, were the, those third-rate Tory MPs, just realistic <laughs> to know enough that they're totally un unemployable in any other capacity apart from Tory MPs. So very, it, it tremendously anxious to win the next election. And she'd won three elections 79, 83, and 87, staggering achievement. But they they thought she was taking them onto the rocks by 1990. So Hesseltine stood against her. And 
they looked around, she looked around. Uh, once she realized she couldn't carry on herself for a stop Heseltine candidate. Uh, and who should it be but the boy from, the man from Brixton, John Major, just, just there at the right time and able to give the Thatcherites sufficient impression that he was one of them. Um, and uh, so in he came. Uh, it was a really tremendous. The, the, the downfall of Thatcher was one of the great sort of political events. The Tories are very good at having these leadership rows, actually. They, they had another one in 2016. They had one in 1963, one in 1940, one in 1922. They, they do it every so often. They have a tremendous sort of internal battle about who should now lead the party. Uh, no doubt they'll have another of those in, in due course. But uh, the, the, one, the one, the getting rid of Thatcher, it was like killing. It was a sort of act, act of many of them felt it was like sort of killing their mother. Uh, and the party, of course, took a very, very long time to recover from. And it's although, still although, slightly well, in the grip of it now. That's the thing. Is yes. that, 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 you, you know, you're, you're, you know, you've got, whether it's Liz Truss posing as Margaret Thatcher on a tank. Yes. You know, a, a, actually yes. a cultural reference point, which is, what, 30, 40 years old now, but is still, yes. it still seems to resonate with a certain type of toy. It still resonates. Quite a few people in Boris Johnson's cabinet were inspired when young by Margaret Thatcher. Kwasi Kwarteng did a book about her, and Kwasi Kwarteng's mother is a devout Methodist, and uh, Margaret Thatcher, of course, was from a Methodist household with a very strong sort of distinction between right and wrong, uh, and uh, which she carried into politics. And that very strongly appealed to some, not not only to many people in this country, but to many people many people who came to this country. In the case of Kwasi Kwarteng's parents, they came from. Ghana and and uh, his mother, yeah, Thatcher was uh, this, this idea of of, of self sufficiency of the vigorous virtues had a strong appeal to some to some immigrants as well as to um, as well as to many people in this who, who who were already living here. Yeah, so that was Margaret Thatcher, there, who then of course handed over, if that's the right word, to uh, John Major, Andrew Jimson, John Major. In many ways, couldn't have been more different to Margaret Thatcher. But the, 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 the sort of the caricature of him now, the grey man who tucked his shirt into his underpants, you don't get to be prime minister by being that caricature, do you? No, and you certainly don't get to win the next uh, general election, which everyone thinks you're going to lose. Uh, he won in 1992 against Neil Kinnock. And that was, that was a very impressive thing. Uh, he, he, of course, his one trump card was not being Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and he got rid of the hated poll tax and he was adopting a more emollient tone on Europe. But it did after that, it very soon went wrong because the we had Black Wednesday, the pound crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism. And um, John Major, along with Douglas Hurd, had, had, they had twisted Margaret Thatcher's arm and forced her to take us into the exchange rate mechanism at what turned out to be an overvalued rate. Uh, and then Helmut Kohl wouldn't stretch out his hand. Um, and save the British pound. I mean, why should he? He was that, uh, you know, the Deutschmark was a German currency. So that was a, that was a catastrophe. And the Chancellor, Norman Lamont, stayed in post for eight months after that. And really, although in fact, oddly enough, devaluation was just what the British economy needed and the economy started to grow quite well. And Ken Clark became um, Chancellor and people started to get more prosperous. No, none of the credit for this went to, went to the um, Conservatives. In fact, made it easier to trust the Labour Party. So um, Major was in a, a very, very tough position and his own troops rebelled 
I mean, he was heard describing them as the bastards. It's quite a small group of them, but a, a small but very determined group of Eurosceptics could make his life a misery in the House of Commons. So that was very, very difficult. And then in an attempt to relaunch his government, he said, let's have back to basics. And he didn't really mean that this was, that everyone should be sort of, <laughs> lead lives of complete sort of um, monastic virtue uh, or, uh, or uxorious virtue. Um, but of course, the press um, interpreted as being about people's sex lives. There was various grotesque sex scandals. There were also some financial scandals. So Tory sleaze became a very, very difficult thing to deal with because once the, it wasn't just looking for parties at number 10, it was, once you've got sort of hundreds of Tory MPs, you're bound to find some of them who've been doing, doing something which looks pretty embarrassing in the papers. And <laughs> so there was a lot of that. Uh, and he couldn't ever really get back on the, on the front foot. Um, lost heavily in, in 1997, uh, resigned immediately and went off to watch cricket at the Oval. Uh, he had got the Irish peace process going. He'd done all sorts of um, things. But those years when he was, as, as Norman Lamont unkindly put it, in office but not in power, um, those perhaps are, are one of the things about him which linger, linger a bit in people's memory. But it's interesting, and the point you make in your book is that, is that the, the economy was growing by the time he left office, that, like I said, yes. the Northern Ireland peace process was in train, you yes. know, the National Lottery was a John Major. Yes, yes. So, but he actually doesn't really get, he just gets the, remembered as the, the grey man and Tory sleaze and he leading the Tories to the worst result ever. But actually, you know, because the, the winner takes the spoils, I suppose. It's very, very difficult following a tremendously dominant figure like like Margaret Thatcher. I mean, obviously for Brown, it was difficult following Blair. Uh, for Douglas Hume, it was difficult following Macmillan. So uh, to be the sort of tail end Charlie is a, is a tricky thing. But there he was. He was there for seven years. Not Not yeah. a bad record. So Andrew, from John Major, we now turn to Prime Minister number 51, Tony Blair. Yes, the most successful Labour leader ever, though he said before he became Prime Minister that his work would be complete once he had taught the Labour Party to love Peter Mandelson. And that I don't think he ever did quite manage. But he did win three elections in a row. And at the beginning, he was staggeringly effective opponent to John Major. Um, and Blair knew how to talk to everyone from a duchess to a cleaning lady. He could adopt the right tone. And he had a genius, I'm afraid, for annoying his own party and thereby convincing Middle England that he must be a sound enough chap and was really a bit of a Tory. And so it, it was a tremendous electoral, um, it was a tremendous electoral record. No, no question about that. In fact, one of, that's one of the many things which many people in the Labour Party couldn't forgive him for. He was too, too damn successful. Well, also, and it's slightly borne out, I suppose, of being elected in 1983, one of the worst results that the Labour Party had ever suffered, the longest suicide note in history and so on, um, when they'd already been in opposition by that point for, for four years. And he arrived, you know, anyone in a new job is all excitable and enthusiastic, quite quickly becomes bored with the idea of being in opposition. But at a time when the Labour Party wasn't really concerned about you know doing the right thing and feeling good about themselves was more important than than winning and, and the idea of even discussing how you might win an election was seen as a sort of traitorous thing to do to the cause well there were people working on this and of course neil kinnock did a lot of the of the donkey work and then failed to win in 1992 meanwhile tony blair found himself sharing an, a windowless office with a much um, more experienced 
uh, and much better known figure um, from Edinburgh, from Kirkcaldy, um, Gordon Brown, who had already been a, a famous figure at Edinburgh University, became rector of the university, knew a lot about politics, um, had a tremendous ability to devise the right sound bites, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. That was one he gave to Blair, who was at that point shadow foreign secretary. But you're right, the Labour Party was in a, in a desperate mess and someone like Blair might have joined the SDP. He didn't, he joined Labour and Labour gradually got back into contention, looked as though they were going to win in 1992 and then didn't. And at that point, Gordon Brown didn't go for the leadership. He let John Smith take it. Two years later, John Smith had a heart attack and Blair went for it to Brown's lasting, oh, disappointment is too, too soft a word. He, he felt very, very bitter about this, uh, but he had to accept it. And of course, Blair was a much better communicator than Brown. And at his first Labour Party conference as leader, he said to his, uh, one of his key people, Philip Gould, he said, I think the time has come to give the Labour Party some electric shock treatment, uh, which was getting rid of clause four. And God, the poor Labour um, people cried out in agony, but other people thought that must mean that Blair was, you know, got a grip on his own party and, and could be trusted uh, to, run, to run the country. And I suppose that's the thing, and we've seen it more recently, you know, when Keir Starmer became Labour leader and he talked about unity was, you know, the key. And actually, you, because people don't like divided parties, but actually the point of having the fight with, the Labour Party over Clause Four was partly because he didn't think that the state should be owning it. That was actually his view, and economically, but also there was a purpose in the fight, in being seen to have that fight and win that fight with your own side to change the public perception of the Labour Party. There was a purpose in the fight. Some people say actually that whoever had been Labour leader, the Tories were doing so badly after Black Wednesday in 1992 that, um, that their economic credibility was so shot to pieces and they'd been in power for so long and there were such problems with Tory sleeves and with Maastricht and everything that anyone would have won and that the Blairites, Blairite, I mean there's a very good book called The Myth of the Strong Leader by Archie Brown which suggests that Blair didn't make much difference but anyhow he, he certainly took advantage of the, he, he was astute and he took advantage of the situation and Labour came in when the economy was already doing well and they didn't throw it away um, or not immediately. So Blair does deserve credit for that. And I suppose um, it's possible that another Labour leader would have won the election in 97, but, but, but perhaps not an historic landslide, which actually then meant yeah. he'd got the headroom to basically whittle that away over three elections, you know, to win three elections. Yes. Yes. You know, another Labour leader might have only won a bit, the Tories wouldn't have been quite so destroyed, yes. and the Tories might have been back in contention by 2001. And the extraordinary thing that Tony Blair did was sort of redefine a decade in politics and the yes and he got his party to accept pretty much everything all the thatcherite reforms including the union reforms but he did find public sector reform of course it is very very difficult he said he had the scars on his back after two years of of, of, of trying to make a start on that so he got increasingly interested in foreign affairs he had successes in kosovo and sierra leone and then the big question what after after the attack on the twin towers uh, he absolutely went in shoulder to shoulder with the Americans and, of course, the Iraq war, which many people will never forgive Tony Blair for. He launched that and it was a great sort of crusade to bring democracy to Iraq and indeed to Afghanistan. Uh, and, of course, the whole thing became, the occupation became, which for which no preparation had been made, became terribly bloody. And Blair and his closest associates were accused of 
pretending that there were, or, or telling us that there were weapons of mass destruction, uh, which there weren't. So that was a catastrophe from which I think, I think one has to say his reputation has yet to recover. Is that just what happens to prime ministers, do you think? There was so, you know, Blair's was the worst one since Suez. Bold politicians end up mucking it up in the end. It happens to the most of them. Lord Salisbury managed to retire at a time of his own choosing, having having led Britain through the rigours of the Boer War, which hadn't which had gone jolly badly to start with. Um, Baldwin again managed to retire at a time of his choosing, and so did Harold Wilson. But it's very very unusual, and usually these people they feel their powers declining. They feel that actually they're not very well, and that they've been in for for quite a while, and it's they're astute enough. But it's very, very difficult. And Blair, of course, clung. He, he, he simply wouldn't hand over to Brown. And the, the Brownite thugs only came for him after the 2005 election. And in 2006, he was forced to promise to go in 2007. So he clung on for a very long time. Um, and of course, like most most of us, he'd come to regard himself as in- indispensable. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, Matt. <laughs> um, oh, I'm definitely not indispensable. I, is it right to rank Tony Blair alongside the sort of great, and by great, I mean sort of influential and successful on their own terms, regard, you know, rather than necessarily the politics of it. But is he ranked alongside Margaret Thatcher? Uh, who, who else would we put on that? I mean, certainly the Conservative Party well, seems to divide itself between the Thatcherites and the people who thought that David Cameron was the heir to Blair. You know, they were... Their surname means something in politics in the way that May and Brown maybe yes. don't. I don't think the term Blairite, it does have a big resonance. In fact, it, had, it was caused terrible trouble within the Labour Party if you were tagged a Blairite. That, that made it very difficult to get anywhere after Blair. Um, I think, but I think, the, I think the term has rather died down now. And there are, as far as I can tell, I'm... There are fewer people who went into Labour politics because they were inspired by Tony Blair. There are still quite a lot of Tories at the top level who went in because they were inspired by Thatcher. So I think she did have a... Of course, the country was in a much deeper difficulties in 1979 than it was 18 years later when Blair took over. So in a way, there was more for her to do, but she did do it and and did... I mean, Blair did things like the Northern Ireland peace process, completed what John Major had started. He did... And devolution, big things, but not quite as big as the task confronting Thatcher in 79. Is it a little unfair for us even to be assessing the political impact of, uh, we're going to do it for the rest of the week with the other the other prime ministers. How long do you think someone needs to be out of office before we can properly get a handle on the shape of their premiership? It is a bit unfair uh, and it can change. But in fact, it often happens very quickly, I think, that a prime minister's reputation becomes fairly fixed in the public mind because we find it difficult to remember very much about, if anything, you're right, some we don't really remember anything at all, but we find it difficult to remember much. And I'm afraid Chamberlain, although many people have made great attempts to rescue his reputation, he's never really re- recovered from the propaganda in 1940, according to which he, he was one of the guilty men who hadn't dealt with the Nazis and was to blame for Britain being pitifully unprepared um, in 1939. So his reputation has never recovered. And so sometimes these things do become pretty much fixed. I think more, probably, probably yes, Thatcher, perhaps more of her erstwhile opponents would now admit she was a considerable figure than were prepared to do that at the time. Um, but Blair, well, Blair has this trouble is he has this virtuous, this self-righteous tone, trying to convince 
not only himself but the rest of us that he's a he's a noble person and that that becomes very tiresome um so he, in some ways he's his own worst enemy i think <laughs> yeah he's still he doesn't realize it, it, somebody else needs to redefine his reputation he's yes not exactly you can't you can't control your own reputation uh, fully <laughs> i mean you can do your best but telling people what to think is is, is not tactful really so that is the the life and times of tony blair uh, number 51 in our list of prime ministers andrew number 52 Yes, Gordon Brown, big figure, the clunking fist, had waited. He, in some ways, he, I mean, who knows, perhaps he would have been a, a very great prime minister if he'd come in in 97, but he'd waited for 10 years, pretending to be satisfied with the job of Chancellor of the Exchequer and being a considerable Chancellor of the Exchequer, but he stayed in that job so long that there was a crash. And of course, he'd said that he'd, he'd unwisely promised that he'd abolish Bloom and Bust. He hadn't. No one, no one can, actually. Um, and uh, so in he came after, when, when the Labour Party was already quite, not exactly exhausted, but it, it does exact a real toll on you, and it exacted a toll on Brown, and then he, then he had a honeymoon when he came in in, in um, 2007. Everything went well for several months, and people thought he was going to call a general election, and he didn't quite have the audacity to go for it, and that was possibly a fatal mistake, because very soon after that we had northern rock and um the economy in a dreadful state and the whole bank he, i mean he he applied himself to saving the banking system saved the world in fact he claimed at one point he he, he he by um he misspoke he said he <laughs> saved the world but he he had actually been a big figure in saving the world banking system he un understood how to do that very good at it but of course the question of why this had happened after 10 years of Labour government was a difficult one to evade and he couldn't quite get on the front foot again after that, after his brief honeymoon was over. And people could see the burden of high office, which of course is very, very heavy, weighed very heavily on him. The more trouble he was in, the more the harder he worked, but he was exhausted, his fingernails were bitten down. He brought back Peter Mandelson, which was an imaginative stroke. <laughs> Wonderfully That was, that was uh, yeah, Tony Blair saying that he... He, yes. he, he would be successful when the Labour Party loved uh, Peter Madison. Yes. Even getting to the point where Gordon Brown loved Peter Madison enough to bring him back was <laughs> yes, quite no, that... <laughs> Gordon Brown realised he needed Peter Madison. And Peter Madison, of course, many years earlier, had put the young Brown and the young Blair on the, on the telly a lot because they were so much better than the older generation of Labour politicians at, at selling the Labour message. But that was a long time ago. And how they knew each other very well. And Mandelson probably did help him to help Brown to defeat one or two half-hearted rebellions led by people like David Miliband by ringing around the conspirators and telling them not to, persuading them not to overthrow the prime minister. So Brown got to the 2010 general election, but then lost and still tried to cling on, tried to do some sort of a deal with the Liberals, but the, the numbers weren't really there. It was obvious that although Cameron Cameron and the Conservatives had not got an overall majority, they had got a lot more seats than Labour, and so they really had the sort of moral right to show what they could do. So the whole thing was very, very sad. This great, this in a way great man, and in many ways a successful Chancellor until the crash, and then not quite able to cope, not quite decisive enough. And you, you get so many decisions crossing your desk every day as Prime Minister. He wouldn't delegate them and he couldn't really take them, or he found it very difficult to take those decisions himself. 
Do you think that's? I mean, that's one of the things that, that's come across. We've been doing this all year, every week. We've done, you know, on the prime minister, and that some people just can't do it. And actually, it takes a very rare yes. collection of skills. Yes. It means that you can do it. And actually, yes. almost the fact that he's the sort of person who didn't call the election, the fact he's the sort of person yes. who, who didn't go for the leadership in the 90s, yes. all of that points to someone who lacks yes. that extra, extra sprinkle of something that ultimately might make you a better person at the job. Yes, the big match temperament, which, curious enough, can come from not taking it with terrible sort of Calvinistic seriousness. I mean, I think he, he is a man of moral seriousness and his father of course was a minister in Kirkcaldy and but the, the sort of Calvinistic attitude to things is Calvinists find it difficult to, to relax perhaps um <laughs> but also, I'm, I'm too worried you, by you can take you can take being the minister in, in a church yes. very seriously and completely yes. dedicate yourself to it but you yes. can't do it with the same intensity if the archbishop of Canterbury running all churches no. You can't focus on every single church with the same, and that's Gordon Brown's problem. Was that if, if if, yes. the, if an issue arose, he wanted to read every report on that subject ever before yes. making a decision. Admirable, but plainly, plainly not practical when you're yeah. the top top person. So, but it is all, it's so difficult following a, a dominant person. And Anthony Eden found that following Churchill, uh, and Churchill said on you know more or less the night before Eden took over, I'm not sure Anthony can do it. I, th I think Blair had similar doubts about Gordon's ability to do it, but of course Gordon was the heir apparent. No one else. He he he'd made sure that he, he had no rivals. Um, they at least had been dealt with by the Brownites, and so in he came. But it was in the end, as is often the case, it was an unhappy, an unhappy um, victory for him. There's something about, and maybe it's just coincidence. We shouldn't read too much into it, but the the fact that history repeated itself so quickly, the dominant era-defining Prime Minister gives way to Chancellor who oversees <laughs> huge decline of their party before handing over to opposition. You know, yes. Thatcher to Major, Blair yes. to Brown, actually to some extent Cameron to May in a similar way. You, yes. you know, the, the person who takes over from someone who really came yes. to, to define a political era. Yes. It's a very difficult thing to sort of pick up and run with and maybe it was just Someone has to do it, but you're sort of doomed to failure by that point. Yes, I mean, of course, you're you're determined to become prime minister, so you accept it on on those terms. But it is actually to renew yourself in office is incredibly difficult. Um, they were successful after '97 partly because they had thought out quite carefully yeah. in opposition what they were going to do and how they were going to stick to the. I mean, Brown had realised that if you promised to spend more than the Tories, you, you would immediately. Be regarded as reckless so they promised to stick to the Tory spending limits and that and Brown worked that out in opposition and they did it and it and it all for a time all went fine but that was because they had had the um the leisure to think about it and in office you don't have any leisure to think about things I wonder um if you've seen the the Brown Blair documentaries that came out this year I saw some of it actually I didn't I haven't got around to watching all of it well yeah Christmas is coming but one of the things that really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I'm writing really about Boris me, Johnson. One of the things that really struck me was that, that Tony Blair was actually quite reflective of you know his period and realizing where things have gone wrong and maybe I should have done yes. that, but at the time I thought it was. Gordon yes. Brown is not a man for self-reflection. He still thinks that he was very hard done by, and actually he was very good. And I just wonder yes. whether again that sort of speaks to 
someone who just wasn't quite right for that top job. I think that that's true. But of course, it's very easy for us as spectators. I mean, very interested spectators, but spectators not bearing the burdens of it to, to say that. Um, and it's difficult to think who would have done it better, actually. But you're right. He, he, he somehow, he didn't quite have the ability to relax into the, into the thing. Uh, but I think he, he, he obviously won a great deal of respect for the, for the tenacity and conscientiousness with, with which he with which he at least dealt with the with the financial crisis. Well, that is Gordon Brown, number 52 on our list of prime ministers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, let's move on to uh, number 53 then. Out goes Gordon Brown and in comes David Cameron, the Tory party's attempt. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Their own heir to Blair. Andrew, did, it, did David Cameron live up to, to billing? Well, he ran a coalition with the Liberal Democrats for five years, which lots of people thought wouldn't last, but they'd done the preparation. The press was very struck by Cameron having been in the Bullingdon Club at Oxford and having been to Eton, and they thought this must mean he, he was a sort of toff, uh, which in a way he is. But the, important, the much more important thing politically was that he spent time after Oxford in the Conservative Research Department, and he'd learned the profession of politics, the difference between good briefing and bad briefing, what you can say in any given circumstance and what you can't. He was there at Norman Lamont's side, providing the words about a very difficult, it's been a very difficult and turbulent day. Words written by David Cameron as a special advisor, young special advisor in 1992, when the pound crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism after putting um, interest rates up to 15% and wasting a lot of money in a vain attempt to save the situation. So. Cameron, although very young, had already had a lot of political experience and a lot of political expertise. And he had a group of friends who'd also been in the Conservative Research Department, George Osborne, Ed Llewellyn, quite a few others, who knew how this stuff should be done and who had seen, who to some extent had learned from mistakes of the previous Conservative administration. So Cameron came in and he was very, for a time, it, it, was, a, it was a very skillful performance and they'd filleted the Lib Dem 
um, manifesto. Oliver Letwin had done that um, at Cameron's behest. So they were absolutely prepared for the coalition talks, five days of coalition, and they stay in office for five years. And then win, very unexpectedly, they won um, some extra seats in 2015, got a slim overall majority, and the poor old Lib Dems had been killed with kindness. They had a catastrophe. Into it. The, the, the weaker, the junior partner in the coalition very often does suffer, and that was certainly... Nick Clegg, I was there in, in the garden at number 10. He looked so, he looked indecently happy when he became <laughs> Prime Minister in 2010. It was an extraordinary it, moment, that. It was extraordinary, yes. He was so happy and it, it all went so, uh, well, to their credit, in a way, they were in office for five years, but then, then the Liberals had a very, very, very disappointing time in 2015. I mean, maybe there's a whole new series on Deputy Prime Ministers of our time. Yes. <laughs> I'd always argue that, that Nick Clegg did at least implement more Lib Dem policies than any other Lib Dem leader ever. Yes, I mean, I mean you you could. I mean, tuition fees is one. We're getting started. I've tuition fees yeah. is one question, but the you know being in government every day and making decisions, implementing your manifesto has always got to be better. Surely, than being in opposition. Well, um, yeah, the point you it comes, seat, it's, it's the point at which you sell your own soul, I suppose. But, <laughs> um, and of course, the Tories stole quite a lot of, or, or, or they sort of took the credit for things like cutting or raising the income tax thresholds. For, yeah, for the thing the, that David Cameron said in 2010 was yeah. unaffordable and is now, st- yes. even now, is still a flagship Tory po- conservative yes. policy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just reversing, rewind a bit back to 2010. Because I always think this slightly gets skipped over in the sort of David, the history of David Cameron. He gained 96 seats in the 2010 election, went from yes. 210 to 306. Yes. And in the in the world of, you know, people always complained that, you know, he didn't didn't quite seal the deal. And why did he mm. fall short? It was so, they were still so far behind after the yes. 2005 election that gaining 96 seats you know, 91 off of Labour, five off the Lib Dems because the Lib Dems went backwards. It was an extraordinary achievement. Yes, and people thought that David Davis was going to get it in 2005, and he didn't because Cameron showed more promise and gave better speeches and so on. And there seemed to be something sort of new and hopeful about him. And I think the Tory party made the right choice there, although David Davis has very considerable qualities. Probably Cameron was better at being leader, even if he did even if his stunts, like sort of going off with the huskies and to show that he was keen on green on green stuff, were, were in some ways rather ridiculous. But it, it was it was very impressive. But they weren't performance, and the, and the Tories had done so badly for so long against Labour that it was there was a there was a real need to try something try something new. And those things, I mean, they seem visible now because they've been done to death and all of that. But at the time. Even David Cameron not wearing a tie was seen as a as a subject of national discussion. Yeah, you know, the riding his bike, albeit with his shoes being brought by the car afterwards. Yes. Webcam. Do you remember yes. Web Cameron? This sort of early yeah. foray yes. into sort of YouTube. Where David Cameron doing the washing up while talking about welfare reform or whatever it might be. To say, look, I'm nothing to do with Michael Howard and Ian Duncan Smith as a whole new yes. shiny conservative party. Yes, and he did bring in same-sex marriage, actually, to the yeah. absolute horror of many older Tory members who very much held to the old view that marriage was between a man and a woman. And that there, he really shocked his own party by doing that. But of course, it's, it's remained. It was, he was a very Anglican figure in some ways, because he very much believed in, in good behaviour and in compromise. 
but as far as doctrine was concerned, he was fairly flexible about that. <laughs> uh, we can't obviously talk about David Cameron without discussing, um, you know, so he wins this unexpected, you know, so the, the coalition yes. everyone thought would collapse didn't. Yes. Then he wins this unexpected Tory uh, majority, which yes. would see him sail into the, you know, he wanted to leave on his own terms. He said before the 2015 election he wouldn't yes. fight another one. Um, and instead didn't get to leave on his own terms because he called this blooming referendum. His magic touch didn't, it eluded him at a crucial moment in June 2016. He thought he could, I mean, they'd held the referendum on Scottish independence and had won after, by 55 to 45, but after a lot of anxiety. But he somehow, he's like a bridge player, he thought he could finesse the thing by having another referendum. And he did need to do something. UKIP were rampant in the middle of that 2010-2015 parliament. And Tory members and councillors and one or two Tory MPs were starting to peel away and he had to do something and what he did was, was promise the referendum and his policy obviously was you can have your referendum he said to his Eurosceptics but I'm going to win it unfortunately the second bit did not turn out to be the case he didn't conduct a tough enough renegotiation perhaps that was impossible um, the Germans didn't help him at all um, British politicians are inclined to think the Germans are going to help them and they and Germans generally don't so, of course, a lot of people will never forgive him for having held that referendum and, and lost it. And he, he didn't manage to keep people like Michael Gove, who worked very, very successfully for him and who he thought was a close friend. But Gove went with leave and so did Boris Johnson and um, Remain fought a bad campaign. There, there was a very contradictory campaign because they said it was a leap in the dark to leave Europe. But they also said it would cost each of us exactly sort of £4,223.50 <laughs> per week or something or per year or whatever it was. And the, the whole, the two messages sort of couldn't both be true. So... Um, yeah, it wasn't, it, it can't be a leap into the known unknown. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. To, to yes. misquote someone before. Yes. before. Um, it's sort of amazing that David Cameron is ends up being hated by everyone. Remain is hated because we left the EU and Leave is hated, despite the fact it's only thanks to him that they got the thing that they wanted, but he, the way he fought it, they never really liked him anyway, and he was never one of us or, or whatever, certainly within the Tory party, if not, not the country more generally. And then just to really finish it off, he's done his best to disgrace himself since leaving office. Yes, the lobbying stuff obviously has, has, is a blot on his reputation. Um, ideally, I think former prime ministers would stay in parliament, which Theresa May has. Gordon Brown did for a bit, not for very long, and give Parliament the benefit of their experience. Um, he hasn't done that. And then this sort of on-wishy-say-vous stuff um, and, and lobbying of, of former colleagues isn't... isn't um, that, that, that has damaged his reputation. Um, but you said nobody likes him. I, oddly, oddly enough, I suppose it shows what a feeble person I am. I do rather like him. <laughs> not a proper journalist at all. <laughs> You're allowed, to, you're allowed to like him. You're allowed, you're, I'm not saying that, maybe, yeah, maybe he's, he, he seems to have unnecessarily lost some friends along the way. He has lost many friends, yes. But um, he's, he's preserved a, a fitting silence, I think. He hasn't always been giving lots and lots of advice, despite being out of Parliament. He's left, he's left his successors to get on with it, which I, th I think he deserves some credit for that. Yes, something that um, I suspect that Boris Johnson would rather Theresa May took that a similar vow of silence uh, mm. slightly. Uh, we'll come on to her, but uh, for now, that was that was David Cameron. So, Andrew, number fifty-four, Theresa May, only the second woman to become prime minister. Where to begin? I mean, we should, I suppose we should go right back to the beginning, really, because Theresa May had been in politics for a, a very long time, and not always destined for greatness necessarily. Well, she was the most able 
by far the most able of the very small number of women Tory MPs elected in 1997. But you're right, she wasn't identified. But this is true of Margaret Thatcher as well, actually. He, she, she, she was the ablest member of the 1959 intake. But again, people didn't spot in her, or very few people spotted in her a future prime minister. People, few people spotted it in May. She first came to sort of wider attention. She became Tory party chairman and told people, the Tories in Bournemouth in 2002, that they were seen, still seem quite widely seen as the nasty party. And a lot of Tories rather held that against her. But anyhow, she was a very capable person. And in 2010, Cameron sent her to the Home Office, which is a nightmare department in many ways. There are all sorts of horrible things which can go wrong. And she gripped it and she took on the police federation. She dealt with various very tricky extradition cases from about 2013. She started to give speeches which sort of ranged beyond her brief. And lo and behold, during the referendum campaign, she was a Remainer, but more or less totally silent. She wouldn't help. She gave one speech, which was quite leavy. It was like, these are all the reasons why yes. the EU is terrible. And that's yes. why I think on the whole, we should stay. Exactly. And then in the amazing period, immediately after the referendum, when Cameron resigned and Boris Johnson became the front runner and then his close colleague, Michael Gove, said he was not fit um, to be prime minister. And Theresa May suddenly looked like the only grown up person in the room. And she was actually, I mean, she's 10 years older than David Cameron. She's from an older, sort of from a sort of 1970s Oxford generation of politicians. And so she came through and she was very, very popular to begin with. She was a delightful change, people thought, just what the country needed. And she said she would get she would deal with the rather tricky matter of Brexit. She then decided she didn't have quite the majority she needed. And so she called an election. And of course, that's when it all went terribly wrong, because the, I think a lot of voters thought they'd already given their instructions in the, in the referendum the previous year, which was to leave the European Union and get on and do it. And why, why, why was someone who offering strong and stable leadership bothering to make them go to the polls, make us go to the polls again. And so although, in fact, the Conservative vote went up a bit, the Labour vote on Jeremy Corbyn appealed, turned out to be rather a good campaigner. And she, of course, was a very poor campaigner who couldn't connect with people as it's a campaigner. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Gordon Brown's maligned for not calling a general election. And almost exactly 10 years later, yes. Theresa May is maligned because she did call a general election. Well, and both... She... both probably convinced themselves of the merits of their decision at the time but it for becomes her, it, it basically define their yes. premiership it seemed an easier decision for her because the tories were so, had such dominance in the polls and so there was received wisdom was that corbyn would be hopeless and so no one would vote for corbyn well because corbyn wasn't expected to win people thought they could vote for him as a protest as, as a result of which he did rather well and meanwhile she had things like the dementia tax which were you know nothing has changed nothing exactly so she <laughs> fought a very poor campaign. then however she remained in office for two more years and she'd put the euro skeptics in these senior ministerial posts most most notably boris johnson as foreign secretary she ground out a, a sort of agreement she summoned everyone to checkers and then they went home and first david davis resigned in protest at the checkers agreement and then Boris Johnson thought he got to as well. Uh, he, was, he resigned in protest at all the media coverage at David Davis. <laughs> and it looked then as if her, I mean, 
her position was already very weak after after the 2017 election after after checkers it was even weaker and yet she remained i think because a lot of tory mps cast around for a stop boris candidate and they couldn't find one so she became by default the stop boris figure um and they they went on hoping for a long time somehow she could sort the this wretched brexit business out but she couldn't and do you think it was at that point unsortoutable the position that she was in or is there was there something about theresa may as a person as a politician as a negotiator as a people person that actually made meant that she was unable to sort it out i think she she sort of pretended to have a grip on it probably tried even to convince herself that she had a grip on it but she didn't entirely and she made unwise i mean the irish border situation was logically insoluble but she made unwise concessions early on possibly without realizing that she was making unwise concessions about how there must be completely free north-south trade which meant that we're going to there's going to be some problem east-west i think the irish negotiators were well prepared and so with so were the commission the european commission's our negotiators were not properly had not properly thought this through and certainly our politicians hadn't that was partly cameron's fault he wouldn't make any preparations for losing the vote so we absolutely hadn't thought thought about it um, and we were up against people who had thought a lot about it uh, and we and she made a hash of it so i think although it was a very difficult situation i think she wasn't her record as a negotiator was rather mixed and she wasn't good at eventually sort of striking up a rapport with whoever it was who i mean notoriously these deals are done at the last minute but then you you probably do need to have some rapport with the person who you go to see in brussels and she generally didn't didn't manage that i remember i think it was nick clegg saying that he'd have when he was deputy prime minister and she was home secretary and they used to clash quite a lot on law and order and civil liberties and so on and he he went to david cameron and said i'm having this real problem with theresa may because they were trying to negotiate something and he go to theresa may and she said this is what i think and he said well yeah i know but this is what i think but i'm willing to go to this what do you think and she just said no and so we got well okay well i'll concede this what are you going to concede and she said, well nothing and it's went <laughs> yes. on and on and on where she just refused point blank yes. that was her idea of negotiator is to keep yes. saying no it's where the other person now and Dave, nick clegg said this to david cameron uh and sort of set out this issue that she's been completely impossible and whatever i suggest she won't yes. budge and david cameron's response was oh thank god i just thought she was like that with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and may, maybe maybe in the world of you can do that if you're home secretary because you've got your own yes. empire and you can just sit and just lock yes. in but if you are, you know, basically negotiating with your own cabinet, with Parliament and Brussels, yes. and your stock position with all of them is, no, I'm going to sit here until they agree with me. Yeah. In the end, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it didn't we work. should reflect on the fact that she is in the 55 we're talking about, only the second woman. One of them was there for 10 years and one of them was there for, what, two, three? Three. Yes, three, actually. Yes, longer than um, it. Should we read anything into that, or are they just politicians? Does being a woman in politics make any difference to Theresa May, do you think? I think it does make a difference. And actually, one of the good things she's done with Anne Jenkin is encouraged a lot more women to try to become Tory MPs and um, mentored, gifted people. So a lot of good people have come in, partly as a result of Theresa May showing that it can be done. Um, and you do really have to encourage people because in some ways it's it's such a commitment of time and energy and reputation and everything that you do need encouragement to go in for it. Uh, and traditionally men would be more likely to say, I'm, I'd am i be a wonderful MP than women are less inclined to 
puff themselves in that intolerable fashion. So Theresa May was very, very good at encouraging high quality women to think about becoming Tory MPs. And the Parliament has, has definitely changed as a result of that. Yeah, and it's also very good. I must say, it's very good that she stayed in Parliament. I agree. There's more to politics than being a minister or, or indeed being a prime minister. You should stay there and give the nation the benefit of your experience. And she's doing that. And actually, there's a parallel universe where the Commons has four or five former prime ministers, former chancellors, former yes. home secretaries who could say, look, we tried this. I know it doesn't work. Yes. I warned you about that. You know, that, that could yeah. actually make a difference in the world. Yes. Well, that is Theresa May then, number 54 yes. in our list of prime ministers. So, Andy Jimson, we come to number 55. I've got a copy, my copy of Jimson's Prime Ministers, Brief Lives from Walpole to May, which I was just checking is not a signed copy. And you've definitely signed me a copy at some point. So I don't know whose oh, well. copy I've got here. But we come then to number 55. Yes. I know it's been updated, your book, Brief Lives yes. from Walpole to now Johnson. Yes. But in the front of the book, of the, there were several quotes from former prime ministers about the life of uh, politicians. Uh, Benjamin yes. Disraeli uh, saying when he became prime minister in 1868, yes, I've climbed to the top of the greasy pole. Uh, yep. One of my favourites is Howard Macmillan uh, as prime minister, <laughs> walking down a litter-filled corridor in a hotel in Clandudno during the Conservative Party conference in 1962, saying Gladstone and Disraeli never had to put up with this. But the one I want to reflect on most, because I think it, it would speak yes. to slightly Boris Johnson, is the Clement Attlee quote. Clement Attlee said, There is one thing about politics that I think cannot be disputed. If a man stays in them long enough, they will nearly always reveal him for what he is, and he tends to not only get what he deserves, but to find in his fate the reflection of his own strength and weakness. Yes. And after all this, I mean, particularly this year and particularly this month, reflecting on Boris Johnson, lots of suggestions that Boris Johnson should change. And actually, yes. my sense is that politicians or indeed people do not change. And what we are seeing as 2021 comes to an end in Boris Johnson's premiership is just confirmation of what Boris Johnson is like. Yes, I think he hasn't changed very much. And I've not only written a book about all the prime ministers, I wrote a, a, a biography about Boris Johnson. And the most quoted bit of it is the bit by in one of his school reports by his housemaster, a brilliant man called Martin Hammond, who said that Boris expects to be an exception to the system of obligation that binds everyone else. And he got into quite a lot of trouble at Eton for, for doing things his own way. And for example, just turning up very, very late to a meeting with the provost and things, which most people would think was extremely rude and also somehow imprudent. And yet he got made, he got given the title captain of school having missed out on it the, you know, to begin with. But he got, he got to the top and he became a famous figure at school, famous for forgetting his lines or appearing to forget his lines in the middle of a play or a reading or whatever it was that he was doing. Uh, a famous figure at Oxford, again, president of the union at the second attempt. And then a famous journalist from 1989 when he went to Brussels as the Telegraph correspondent. And some of the other correspondents were furious with him because they thought that he embroidered his stories, and he undoubtedly did. He couldn't, he didn't really, he treated it almost as if he was a novelist. He wrote stories <laughs> to sort of illuminate what, what he thought was going on in Brussels, that Jacques Delors was taking more power for the European Commission. Um, and this absolutely infuriated his competitors. I mean, in those days, you, if, if you were a correspondent somewhere, you might get rung up at 11 o'clock at night, and you know, the Times or someone would say, look, the Daily Telegraph, Boris Johnson got this story in the Daily Telegraph, could you follow it up for the, our second edition, please? 
absolute nightmare, especially as the details in the story were often all wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> Though I would say that he got the big picture right, but I can't, one can't defend his... Well, I suppose you would say that he was you. You quite like the cause with which he was fighting, rather than the rather than the detail. I admired his ability not only to get the big picture, but to see when the story had changed. So when the story was no longer in Brussels, he got on the next plane to to to, um, to Belgrade um, and, and sort of got interested in the Balkans when that was suddenly where the story was. So anyhow, a capable journalist, but not entire, not of course some journal, and very capable, obviously, at reaching the wider public, then on Have I Got News For You, then editor of The Spectator and into Parliament in 2001 as MP for Henley. And this was during the long Blairite ascendancy. Several Tory leaders had already failed. Ian Duncan Smith was um, having a not very successful time. And people said, maybe Boris Johnson is the person we need. And then at the end of 2000... That was was a bit before my time in Westminster. Was he seen as a possible leader at that point? He was, yes. And then he had various disasters at the end of 2004. Um, one to do with Liverpool, one to do with the Pyramid of Piffle. Um, and these disasters meant that Tory MPs, Tory MPs were quite cross with him for remaining editor of The Spectator while also being MP for Henley. He didn't, he, he just didn't have the time to spend in the chamber or in committee sort of doing the dreary stuff that lots of, but then when he turned up at Westminster on his bike, Took him 11 minutes to cycle at high speed from the offices of the spectators to Westminster. Of course, everyone was interested in him, whereas all these other poor um, people who were sort of toiling away very conscientiously, no one was interested in them. So he was quite unpopular, but nevertheless seen as a, a potential leader until the, these disasters at the end of 2004. He was sacked by Michael Howard from his position as a shadow arts spokesman. And so in 2005, when Howard lost again, lost the third election in a row to Labour. Um, Johnson was not in position to challenge the leadership and he backed David Cameron. But then Cameron kept him at a distance. The last thing Cameron wanted was some loose cannon old Etonian stealing his thunder. Uh, so Johnson, at that point, I think he could he could just have said, well, I'll be a celebrity. I'll be have a, have a television show. I'll have a very well-paid column. But he didn't. He went off and became and, and stood against Ken Livingstone for mayor of London. And Ken was thought the campaign to be, that he was not expected to win at the very beginning. No, Ken was thought to be unbeatable, uh, and London, on the whole, a Labour-leaning city. And Johnson went and beat Livingston not once, but he stood again and beat him the second time in 2012. So that somehow, and, and that was a sort of uh, a way of doing something very, very it was a sort of outflanking manoeuvre. Really, it put him in contention for when Cameron was no longer around. Um, so he came back into Parliament in 2015 and then, of course, stood on the... After a lot of havering, I think, I think he could see that there was a real argument about Europe. But he backed the leave, leave side and probably... I mean, the result was so close that I think one can say that he had a decisive impact. And so, of course, he's been hated since then by, by those Remainers who felt completely bereaved by the result. And then he didn't get... It, it seemed only just that he should deal with the problem or the difficulties... <laughs> of his creation, yeah. Uh, of his creation, but of course he was denounced by um, Go Michael Gove, and then I think uh, then then decided not to sort of fight on to the bitter end, and then amazingly became foreign secretary. So it was a real sort of roller coaster thing. Uh, but as foreign secretary, May did not trust him. Not only did she not trust him, but she made fun of him in public. She made jokes about him at the party conference and 
on various other occasions. She sort of really cut him down to size and wouldn't. And you can't be a successful foreign secretary if you're not, if the prime minister of the day doesn't want to work with you. But there's as, something interesting as... about that, isn't it? Is, is that the perception of Boris Johnson is that he's a gregarious, fun-loving, jokey guy you want to go down the pub yeah. with. And actually, he's a bit of a loner. Like you said, he didn't have lots yes. of friends in Parliament. He's not really yes. a team player. And he's also quite thin-skinned. So it's all right for him to go around taking the mickey out of everyone else. But he's quite, you know, he yes. can be a bit sore if somebody does it back. Yes. When he does it, he always thinks he can mend fences. Um, and so he, and he does make the call or send the text or whatever in order to do so. And in, Englishmen on the whole are rather bad at that <laughs> and tend to sort of retreat into a grieved silence. So so sort of grievances confessed and he tries not to do that but yes in 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 he came Theresa May having made having failed to get Brexit done and he did get Brexit done after several months in the in the autumn of 2019 the prorogation and the withdrawal of the whip from 21 conservatives really and tremendous sort of uh, and losing control of of the house of commons and then going to the country and winning an 80-seat majority. An extraordinary result. Which is yes. still, I mean, in the depths now of record rebellions and all of that, still extraordinary yes. to have put on, you know, to have won that result and to have won those seats in the places that he did. Yes, the, the, the Tory vote had increased at every general election, I think, since 2001, but not by very much. So there was a rising tide, but then to actually break through in substantial number of Labour seats. And it was very much his, I mean, I spoke to a Tory MP who, went canvassing quite he had a safe seat in the midlands and he went canvassing quite a bit in the north and he would say at the end thank you so much for supporting the conservative party and to which the person would invariably reply oh yes i'm voting for boris so it was a personal there was a a, a personal element in that and course, people were so fed up with brexit by then that get brexit done was a brilliant sort of slogan yeah, yeah i suppose that that was the thing that the, it became a you know i will end the chaos yes. argument, which was a which was a, a thing that resonated we haven't even really touched on coronavirus and his, no. his handling of that and whether or not he was particularly well suited to just I just want to sort of round off by looking back on all all yes. of his fifty four predecessors and at various points it's just been you know, almost by coincidence, whoever we've been doing, we've reflected on the fact that that's a bit like Boris Johnson or this is a bit like Boris Johnson. Who do you think in the grand sweep of, of the of his fifty four predecessors, Boris Johnson really is most like? And does that give us any clue of what 2022 in the coming years might have in store for him. The Tory leader who he most resembles is Disraeli, one of very few Tory leaders to have made a living from words. Disraeli's novels are better than Boris Johnson's novel, but they have a similar audacity. Success is the child of audacity, Disraeli once wrote, and that is a maxim by which Boris Johnson lives and by which perhaps at some point his career will end. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating, Andrew, doing this uh, every week this year uh, with a bumper crop uh, uh, to, to round off with. Um, Jimson's Prime Minister's Brief Lives from Walpole to Johnson is available if you're doing some last-minute Christmas yes. shopping uh, for that political uh, nerd in your life. Well, the beauty of it is, is rather than reading your great big long book on Boris Johnson, you can read the same length book and it covers all of them. It does. That's what, that's Thank you, man. Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining us every week. And uh, we look forward to doing the same again next year. 
Thank you so much. What are we going to do next year, Andrew? Are we doing kings and queens or US presidents? Uh, well, I think we'll have to. I think we should have lunch, and it's it's, it's a big question which Perfect. can't be well, can't be decided on the spur of the moment. Lunch in the new year. Perfect. Yeah. Whatever we're allowed to. Andrew Jimson, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so. Thank you. Bye bye. So there you have it, the most recent Prime Ministers from Thatcher to Johnson. And if you're still looking for some late Christmas shopping, I can't recommend enough Jimson's Prime Minister's brief lives from Walpole to Johnson. It's a cracking week. It's really good. Right, coming up on the podcast tomorrow, the tables are really turned. Luke Jones presents Weekend Breakfast on Times Radio, interviews me, Matt Shirley. Find out what happens on the podcast tomorrow.